All right, ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to Kabbalah Cafe. It's the formal welcome. We had many informal welcomes thus far. Okay, so today we are starting our final chapter of Garments of the Soul. Topic is bathed in light, and we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about. But first, I want to begin with a story. A story that has Rosh Hashanah significance, and then we're going to segue into our text and kind of uh, blend all these themes together. So the story goes that there was once a paritz. You know what a paritz is? A who? A paritz. A paritz. A paritz was the name, the Yiddish name, for a squire. I think the English word would be squire. Now you're wondering what's a squire. Now we have to translate that. It was basically a reference or the name that was used to refer to someone who was a wealthy landowner from whom Jewish, I don't know, peasants, uh, you know, simple Jews would often rent land. So the pirates owned large swaths of land. And then you had, um, then you had... Well, not necessarily, because the land, some of it was used for farming. Sometimes they opened up inns and taverns on the property or Air, not Airbnbs. Awkward. What, what's up? B&Bs. Just B&Bs? Is that what it used to be called? Bed and breakfast? Sounds so weird without the air. My oh my grandfather had so one of those bizarre. taverns, but it was beer and bowling. Beer and bowling. This well, was a form of bowling. In the old country. I wonder if they had bowling. There was a form, my great grandfather really? had it in his tavern. Where was this? In um, Galicia. Really? Mm-hmm. All right. So maybe this is maybe this is history. Anyway, so That's the where Rosen so the, came the, from. Oh, really? He owned the beer garden. That's the last name. Yeah. Ah. Huh. All right. There's, there's so much more to unpack with that story. Okay. <laughs> Very interesting. So anyway, the story goes that one time this pirates gets it in his head, he, he heard a rumor, you know how things spread, the internet, right? Things, the rumor spread and he got this idea in his head that the Jews know how to train dogs to speak. So he comes to the Jews that live on his land, he calls a meeting, he says, guys, I know the truth, the secret's out, you can't fool me anymore, you guys have been holding on to a secret talent, a secret gift that will be very useful to me. He said, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I, we, she says, I heard that you guys know how to train dogs, teach dogs how to speak. They're laughing. They're like, what, what does that even mean? Right, there's a lot of stereotypes about Jews, but never heard that one before, that Jews can make dogs speak. That's a weird one. Anyway, um, so better they... Better than a space laser. Yes, correct. They're better than a lot of alternatives. However, also not true. So they tell him, no, that's, uh, that's fake news. I don't know if they use the exact terminology, but they said, no, that's not true at all. Um, we don't have that ability. He says, don't lie to me. I know you guys know how to train dogs to speak. And if you don't do this for me and my dog, I will kick you all out. You have to find some other place to live in and do business. He was very serious. So one Jew steps up and says to this guy, this pirates, says to him, you're right, you're right, You've, you know the truth, I will train your dog, but this is how it's going to work. The way we train dogs is as follows, you have to give, up, give me your dog, and it's going to take seven years, <laughs> seven years of intensive training, after seven years, your dog will be speaking fluently, Yiddish. <laughs> By the way, speaking of Yiddish, we have a Yiddish course starting after the holidays. So if you ever wanted to learn how to fetch in the original language. Yes. Yes, with Miriam Udell, yes. Speaking conversational Yiddish. She's amazing. Will you be teaching the curse words that my grandmother used to Absolutely. There will be a special lesson for all of those colorful Yiddish idioms, is I think what you're asking for. All right. So, yes. Oh, my gosh. There's no, no curse like a Jewish, like a Yiddish curse. Wow. Those things were... No, so... so Inventive. May you may you be like an onion, with your head in the ground and like are just terrible, terrible things. My grandmother called me a shtick fair. Right. Well, that's not that's, that's a not piece s- of horse, but the, no, that's not so bad. That's no. Not so bad, no? no, 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 not as sorry. That's terrible, and I I'm not discounting your trauma. However, I will say that I've heard worse. So here's the point. Um, so the point is like this. So so the so the Jew says yes. This one guy steps up and says yes. Give me your dog. Seven years. I got this. The guy drops off the dog, 
and then he leaves. And the other Jews say to this Jew, like, are you crazy? What's your plan? Like, what's, what's, he said, look, seven years is a very long time. In seven years, I might be dead. What's that? The pirates might be dead. The dog might be dead. Seven years. What are the odds that all three of us will be alive? Well, seven years passed. And guess what? He's alive. The Jew's alive. The pirate's alive. And the dog's alive. And now the pirate's is coming back. So the Jew has to hatch a plan. So here's what happens. So the pirate's comes back and he says to the Jew, No, how did it go? Probably didn't say new, but whatever, I'm paraphrasing. So how did it go? Just it went so well, your dog is a natural. Your dog is a natural. In fact, he says, your dog didn't even need seven years. Your dog has been talking for a while. However, I do need to tell you that your dog is very communicative and has been sharing all of your deep, dark secrets. All of the stuff, the skeletons in your closet, all the stuff that's been going on behind closed doors. Your dog has been sharing this and is excited to continue to share this with anyone that he meets and the pirate says, his face turns white, he says, no, kill the dog, get rid of the dog. Here's, oh, that was the punchline, that was, that was it, that was the end of the story. Okay, however, here is the idea that I want to share with you today. There's two approaches that we can take when we encounter our own skeletons, right? There's two ways that we can, two paths that we can take when we encounter our own shortcomings or the moments in our life that we, you know, our regrets, one path is, and I hate even saying these words because it's not nice, but it's, it's, it's a, but is kill the dog. In other words, get rid of the discomfort. If, if I'm feeling discomfort, if I'm looking at myself in the mirror and seeing things that I don't like, it's you know, get rid of that feeling. That's one approach. The other approach is to work on the stuff that I need to work on, to deal with the stuff that I need to deal with. And that's the second, the second approach is, of course, the healthy approach and the Jewish approach, um, notwithstanding this story. I want to share with you a, um, a, uh, a, an anecdote that I once heard. It's actually, I saw it in a video with Rabbi Dr. Torsky. You, some of you may know um, who Rabbi Dr. Torsky was. He was a rabbi. He was uh, part of a very famed Hasidic dynasty. And he was also a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist who was a pioneer in the field of addiction recovery. In fact, he had a center. He lived in Pittsburgh. He, he worked out of Pittsburgh for many years. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, yeah, under my shirt is I'm wearing a Steelers jersey because today's opening. Huh? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'll tell, I'll tell you some stories. So basically, Dr. Torsky opened up something called the Gateway Rehabilitation Center. Right, like right, not, like right around Pittsburgh. And he, Hasidic rabbi, right? No, but, but full-on Hasidic, like long beard, you know, yarmulke, the whole, like the whole Hasidic look. And he, would, he, and he was in the field of addiction recovery, and again, a pioneer in his field. He wrote, I think, 50, 60 books. He partnered with Charles Schultz of Peanuts fame to write books about, you know, spirituality, self-improvement, addiction, recovery. Um, just a, a, an absolute genius and an expert in his field. A really special guy. Um, so yeah, he would daven, he would you know, be there praying at the synagogue that I went to, the shul that I went to as a kid, at the Chabad synagogue. And he would, uh, when I was growing up, he would give the weekly drasha, he would give the sermon every week. He was great. He would give a short, it was like, like five to seven minutes, short, it was to the point, it was sharp. He was amazing. He was an amazing, amazing individual, and I'm very privileged to have had the opportunity to be around him as a kid. Um, but I, I saw a video, he passed away a few years ago, and I saw a video that was kind of going around at that point when he passed away about, he was speaking about um, lessons from a lobster. Lessons from? A lobster. Lessons from a lobster. Could be any lobster, but lobster. Lobsters. Lesson from lobsters. Let's put it that way. What's the lesson from lobsters? He says like this. What happens? A lobster grows and it eventually gets uncomfortable. Why is it uncomfortable? Because it's pushing against its, I don't know, what do you... Shell. Shell? It's probably a... That's why they call it shellfish. Right. True. True. This year, my, uh, my, my New Year's resolution is stopping so shellfish. 
I was, th- I don't know. I heard that. I was, we I was thinking, for- I was thinking, how can I get shellfish as a punchline? I don't know. That's, that was the first thing that came to mind. All right. So back to the story. So he says that the, that the lobster feels uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. So, cause it's like, it's, it's pushed, it's, it's growing, it's big, it's pushing against its, it's whatever, its shell. Like I feel in my shop is soup. As one does. Now, so what does it do? What does the lobster do? The lobster sheds its shell. I'm sure it's called something else. Is it a crustacean something? Whatever. It sheds its shell. We'll just use that. And then it hides behind the rock because without its shell, it's a little vulnerable. And then it, it spends some time behind the rock or, you know, whatever. And it grows a new shell that's larger and more accommodating until it gets uncomfortable again, sheds the shell, and... Rinse and repeat. So Dr. Torsky said the following. He's like, imagine if the lobster was a person living in our times and it would feel uncomfortable. You know what it would do? Probably get some medication, feel better, right? Numb the discomfort, right? I'm feeling uncomfortable. Let me mask the discomfort and let me numb myself so I don't feel the discomfort. So Dr. Torsky's point was that feeling the discomfort is a very important step to personal growth. Because unless you feel discomfort, then you're, not, you're never gonna grow. If you feel discomfort, but the moment you feel it, you try to suppress it, try to mask it, well then, then we're, we're really losing an opportunity for growth because the discomfort is a sign that it's time to change, time to grow, time to whatever it is. By the way, we have many tools of masking discomfort. One is a phone. You pick up a phone like, oh, let me distract myself. Let me, right, let me soothe myself. Could be substances, whatever it is. The point is that we, and, and I'm sure it's, a, it's not a new thing. I'm sure it's a, it's a thing that's been going on since time immemorial. But human beings oftentimes do not, would rather do anything else than deal with the stuff that we need to deal with. And so one thought for as we get ready for Rosh Hashanah, and it's going to integrate with today's class, is that when we feel, you know, when we think about the new year, and we think this, this is the last week of the old year, and come Friday night, Shabbat morning, Saturday morning, we're going to be in the new year, 5784. And a part of, uh, part of entering the new Jewish year is about making resolutions. And making resolutions means that we're looking at the things in our lives that are going well, things in our lives that are maybe not going so well, and thinking about what is it that I can do to better myself or to better the, my impact on the world or in the world, etc. What can I do to be a better person, to show up more for others, to show up more for myself, to be more present in my relationships, my relationship with God, my relationship with others, make a bigger impact in the world, etc. And so the, the, feel, you know, the, the discomfort that we might feel in, in thinking about what it is that we want for this year and thinking about reflecting on the past year, that's actually a good thing. It's good to, to feel a little uncomfortable and to not want to get rid of the dog, and to not want to mask you know, the feelings, but rather to say, look, this is, this is where I am, um, and, and there are opportunities for me to grow this year, um, given what I've accomplished in the past. I think one thing that often gets in the way of progress is this notion of perfection, right? Sometimes we put perfection in the way of progress. Like, if I can't be perfect, then I might, not, then, then I, then I might as well not even start by taking one step forward. Right? If I can't go all the way, then I'm not even going to move an inch. And Judaism teaches again and again and again, never have the illusion or, I don't know, the fantasy of perfection get in the way of your next step forward, of your progress. Um, that is a tactic of the eight Sahar of the evil inclination. The evil inclination says, who are you to take that next step? What, you think you're going to be perfect? Ah, stay where you are. That's all, that's all the negative voice inside that's trying to block any progress. Take one step, and, um, and, and that is where the magic happens. Along those lines, there's a great biblical story, the story of Moses. Who doesn't love the story of Moses? And, and, and many, some of you have heard me say this before in the past, in other contexts, but I think it's really powerful. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the story of Moses is, of course, that he is born at a time when there's a decree that all Jewish boys should be cast into the Nile River and drowned to death, God forbid, right? That was the decree when he was born. And his mother, so interestingly enough, his mother gave birth to him a few months early. He was born prematurely. 
He was born in the seventh month instead of the ninth, ninth month. And so she was able to hide him for a few months because, you know, the, the Egyptians, the taskmasters, they kind of knew when, um, you know, when people were expecting. They had, you know, they had that information. And so they, they came around when, uh, when she was supposed to be due. And already the baby was a few months old. So before they came around, so his mother, right, the Torah, the Bible, the Torah tells us, his mother takes Yochebed, takes Moshe, takes little baby Moses, puts him in a basket. We call that today a Moses basket. And, and puts him on the Nile River, and now he's floating. And the, Torah, the narrative continues. The daughter of Pharaoh, this is like the big irony of the story. One of the big ironies is that the Pharaoh's own daughter, right, is by the Nile River. She sees this basket floating, a baby, here's a baby crying. And the Torah says that she reaches out her arm. And she reaches out her arm and she collects the basket with the baby inside. She recognizes the baby to be a Jewish baby and then <coughs> the rest is history. Was it circumcised? Uh, the baby was, yes, 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 yes. The ba- also the blankets said property of the Jewish community. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, In the movie, right? In the movie, the blanket was a different. Yeah, there was something about right. There was something about the blanket, right? The color was what? I don't know if that. Oh, I think the blanket came from like a talus. They made it look like it was from. Yeah, it was like stripes on it. People singing Havanagila and dancing in a hora, you know. And the baby was very argumentative too. Right. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. And wanted a bargain. Oh, yeah. It's like, ah, now you save me. <laughs> I've been floating here for a while. Where have you been? Exactly. Right. Anyway, so, um, so the, but, but what's interesting is the Torah says, Batishlach es amasa, that she sent out her hand, her arm, and gathered the child. That's what it says. Batishlach es amasa, she sent out her hand, her arm. The comment, there's a commentary that says something beautiful. Amasa is a weird, it's a strange term to use for arm. It also means arm. Ama, if you're familiar with Talmudic terminology, an ama is a measurement that actually means from, the measurement is from the elbow, that's an elbow, to the ends of the fingers. So that, an ama is actually this long. When it says, amasa, she sent out her arm, that's technically correct. But it's still a weird, it's an awkward, it's a, it's a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a, of a weird terminology to use. This commentary says the following. Batisha Chazamasa actually means that her arm, I'm going to say a weird phrase here, unfolded. Ama al ama al ama, yard after yard after yard, it extended. Which means, which means, and this is again a, a famous commentary, it says that her arm miraculously extended. She was standing or in the water, whatever she was, at the edge of the banks of the water. And the baby was in the middle. How'd she reach? She stuck out her arm and it extended, right? What was that? Remember those, those hands, those little gummy, sticky hands where the they kids... Stick yeah. to the wall. Right, six to the wall. And then it makes a mark on the way like, oh, yeah, yeah. Or Stretch look. Armstrong. Stretch, I don't know Stretch Armstrong. You know, you, Is that Buzz Lightyear? Are they related? No, no I'm kidding. Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> By the way, crazy story about Buzz Lightyear. When Leah, my wife Leah, was um, in her, back in her single years, so she was she spent the year in Seattle teaching in the Chabad Day School over there. She stayed out at a house, at a, she stayed at a family's house. That's where they, she and a few friends were, you know, staying for the year. Anyway, a kid in that family had a Buzz Lightyear. <coughs> he went inside his closet. He took matches because I think Buzz Lightyear in the movie, maybe the original movie, Toy Story, like. Did a rocket like with whatever, lit the buzz light, lit lit Buzz Lightyear, lit the toy, and then it like freaked out, left it in the closet, didn't tell anyone. The house burnt down. down. Buzz like literally, Leia comes back from school one day. There's fire trucks on the street. (laughs) She's like, "What's going on?" No, thank God, everyone was fine. Everyone was safe. Except for Buzz Lightyear. Except for Buzz Lightyear did not make it. That's a crazy story. Moral of the story, do not light your Buzz Lightyear on fire. That is not a safe situation. Anyway, that's actually, that's a true story. Thank God no one was hurt. And I think they got it. That's... Anyway, huh? Exactly. 
Exactly, exactly. There's a funny story about insurance. <laughs> the two Jews that meet each other. <laughs> One says about his warehouse burning down. The other guy oh, says, I, I had a hurricane. The other guy says, how do you make a hurricane? Anyway, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> All right. This is not on the record. huh? <laughs> how do you... One says to the other, uh, I hear you had a fire in your store. Yeah. No, it's tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, it's right, exactly. It's what? Right, it's, what? it's tomorrow. Oh, all right. Tomorrow. No, well, this is all. Listen, we are totally above board. Anyway, back to this. I don't even know where we're up to. I have to now unwind a few things. What was I saying? Oh yes, thank you. Oh, unwind. So she was. Actually, I was like in the movie. I don't know my reference. Cecil B. DeMille got that wrong in the movie. I got a few things. Oh, the real Nile is massive. Oh, the Nile is a massive river. Yeah, and Hollywood, when, when they were shooting that, they used, I don't know, whatever stream they had in L.A., whatever. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, the real Nile River is huge. Now, um, yeah, when you see the Nile River, not like I've been to Egypt, but my understanding is, you know, you're like, this turned to blood. I mean, that's a big, it's a big river. It's a lot of water. Okay, um, but getting back. So, so the, our sages tell us that her arm, Bacha's arm, actually unfold, like extended, extendo arm, which leads the f- to the following insight. And the question is, if she was really standing all the way on the side and the baby was in the middle, then why did she even stick out her hand? Why did she stretch out her arm? If it wasn't possible to reach, why did she even try? Because it says that she put out her arm and then it unfolded. But why would she reach if it wasn't there? Imagine you're at a baseball game. And someone hits a foul ball, and it's all the way over there. Were you going to start reaching out your hand? Okay, I do, because I can't judge where it's going. I have, like, <laughs> this difficult, like, oh, my gosh, it's coming to me. Meanwhile, it's, like, not, not even close. Home run. That was a foul ball. I'm like, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to judge. But, but, but the point is that what was she doing just stretching out her arm? What was, what's up with that? And there's a beautiful lesson here, and that is, even when it doesn't seem possible to reach your goal, our tradition tells us, try. try. Or, or, or more than try, get the ball rolling, get started. You might not think you can reach the goal. Like, I can, I can rescue that child. I can accomplish that goal. I can't. I'm standing here. I'm one small person. How can I do that? Take a deep breath. Take the first step. Don't let perfection get in the way of progress. Take the next step. And who knows? Maybe you'll be inspired to take the next step. Maybe you'll be able to take the following step. Maybe a miracle will happen. And you'll reach farther than you could have ever imagined. We all know in our lives how we've been surprised by the extent of our accomplishments, about how far you know, impacting one action uh, you know, it can be. And so this message, um, this pre-Rosh Hashanah message is to never discount the power that we have to make one small step, one small element, implement one small element of change because there's nothing small when it comes to the progress that we make. So that's a bit of a, of a Yom Kippur insight, connected with the Paritz's dog, connected with other things as well, that, how we got here. But the point here is as we get ready for New Year um, and we think about you know, things that we want to improve in our lives, areas that we want to tweak, it should be a positive experience, a positive um, uh, um, process and one filled with um, progress and not hampered, uh, um, yeah, not hampered by the illusion of perfection. With that in mind, I want to talk about the, idea, the theme of today's class, which is bathed in light. And if you saw the email that I wrote uh, before Shabbat on Friday, so the um, our Kabbalah teaches that souls, before they come down to this world, souls are bathing in divine light. What are souls doing? What are they like? What are they playing golf? Like, what are they doing? Answer is yes. No, but uh, but after that, but after the golf round, right? What are they doing? Marshall. They're basking, Mahjong, right? They're 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 chilling in divine light. They're in a they're in a divine space and enjoying the radiance of divine light. And then, the soul's number is called, right? It's kind of like I don't know. I'm in, I'm, right now, I'm in baseball analogy, so we're just going to keep on rolling. So um, it's like you're in the bullpen. Right, that's where the pitchers right, get warmed up, and your number gets called. That phone rings, the red phone, the blue phone, the white phone, I don't know, whatever phone it is, says, all right, come on in. 
AJ Minter comes in. No, I'm kidding. So, so what happens is you make the... Huh? No, 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 nothing's random. So the soul gets a call. The soul is in heaven, right? <laughs> Bathing, right? And the soul gets the call, comes into the body, and that is, that is a new life in this world, and that is how a soul comes into this world. The soul spends, you know, 120, please got 120 years, full life, doing its thing, you know, uh, um, uh, working with the body that it was paired with, working with the other soul that is also operating within the body, which is the animal soul or the natural soul, working with the challenges and the opportunities in the world that it is uniquely positioned to deal with, and it accomplishes, please God, accomplishes its mission on earth. After the passing of the individual, which means after the soul separates from the body, which means, again, that the soul's mission is completed on this earth, so the soul no longer needs the body um, to fulfill its mission because its mission is completed. So the soul and body uncouple. The body returns to its space in the earth, and the soul returns to its space, its space in the spiritual realms. And now what does the soul do? And now the soul, once again, bathes in the divine rays. But there's a major difference. Kabbalah teaches, sorry? Not recycled. Reincarnated, but that's for another... That's for, uh, for another class. We've actually done classes on that. I don't mind doing that again. That was a joke. Reincarnation. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's number two for today. Yeah. <laughs> I try. So, um, so the soul, after, pa- after it's spent time on earth and it goes back to heaven, the soul once again is enjoying divine, um, you know, the divine experience, but this time it's on a much higher level, to the point that it actually needs what Kabbalah says it needs garments in order to experience that light. Now, think of garments in the sense of sunglasses. So, if you're outside on a day like today, I don't know. What do you guys think? What are you voting? Do you need sunglasses? I'm not talking about the cool factor. I'm talking about do you need? You're saying yes, sunglasses? Okay, but there, are, but there are days in which you don't need sunglasses. It's, it's bright outside, but it's not so bright. It's not super bright. But sometimes you go outside and it's so bright, you can't even see what's going on. Anyone go skiing? Right? The sun reflects off the snow and it gets very bright. Yes? Yeah. You need sunglasses because otherwise it's, it's blinding. So, so the idea is that when the light is really bright, you need some sort of um, screen. You need some sort of block so that you can enjoy the light because too much light can be too much of a good thing, right? So you need light to see. But what happens when there's too much light? Paradoxically, you can't see anymore, right? So no light you can't see, too much light you can't see. It's like the three little bears. You have to get it just right. Was that the three little bears, Goldilocks? Goldilocks. Goldilocks. Like the Goldilocks syndrome. Oh, Oh, just right. Okay. Well, in this case, it's not a bad thing. So it's got to be just right, just the right temperature. So what's interesting is that before the soul comes has come down to earth, it doesn't need any screens. It doesn't need any garments, not literal garments. It doesn't need any any, um, filters. But after it spends time on earth and it goes back, now it suddenly needs filters. And one might say, that you know, what, you know what the reason is? Because the soul, having come down to earth, the soul is now in a weaker position than it was before. And so now it can't handle the light, right? You can't handle the light. It's quoting a famous film, paraphrasing, right? So therefore, you need a bit of a screen so that the soul can handle it. But Kabbalah says that's not the case. That's not what's going on. What is really going on is that you cannot compare the intensity of the light that the soul experiences post Time on earth to pre-time on earth. This, the light that the soul experiences before its sojourn on planet earth, that light is relatively weak sauce. Okay, don't quote me on that. It's not, I'm not, it's not an exact, uh, you know, literal translation. But it's, 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 it's weaker. It's radiance of the divine light. It's like a ray, a reflection. It's not the, not the real deal. Ray, that was R-A-Y, not, not you. <laughs> You're the real deal. But that ray, that ray, not the real deal. But after it spends time on earth, after the soul spends 120 years, please God, in a body fulfilling its mission, bringing light into this world, afterwards, the light it experiences up in heaven, 
That light is the full-on light, full intensity, the full essence of divine radiance. In order to experience that light, it has to have garments. It has to have a bit of a filter, some sunglasses, full-body sunglasses. Well, not body. Full-soul sunglasses um, in order to be able to experience and tolerate that light. What are the garments? What are the garments? The mitzvot, the good deeds that we do. The good deeds that we do serve as the filter for the light that the soul experiences above. What's fascinating is the way Kabbalah explains this process because we can ask a question, why is it that before the soul came down below, the light that it experiences is only whatever? How many watts? 30 watts. 30 watts. Afterwards, it's... 200. No way. You kidding me? 200. Million. 200 oh, million, million. Million watts. Yeah, yes. We don't have the power for that. We, no, that's why we need some so garments. That's the point. Ascend to the same degree? It ascends way higher than before. Now, and this is... Are they all equal? What do you mean? Oh, are all souls equal? No. The soul, souls experience different things based on it, their experience below. But the point here is that no matter... Despite that variance, the soul having spent time on earth experiences a much deeper truth and a more powerful light than before. And the question is why? The soul unsullied by, um, by life, by physical life, unmarred by challenge and temptation and other forms of, 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 of human difficulty, it would seem that the soul, before its journey on earth, would be more pristine and the light would be brighter than the one that comes after. But it's precisely not, not so. So I want to share with you one of the big ideas in Kabbalah that I think um, turns everything on its head, well, I know it turns everything on its head, and I'm, I'm hoping it's going to come across coherently, and that is like this. The Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya, the founder of Chabad, he writes in the magnum opus of Chabad Hasidic philosophy called Tanya, he writes that the higher realms to God are a yurida, a descent. In other words, there's God up at the top, picture like an org chart, you have God at the top, and then you have all the, all the layers of spiritual realms. We would loosely call them heaven, but it's you know, the four spiritual worlds. and all, all of those spiritual realms where the angels and the souls hang out, all of those constitute a yurida, a descent for God, because God is God, and then everything else below that is below that. You with me so far? Okay, so for us, we look, I mean, not literally, but you know, conceptually, we look up to heaven. God looks down because God is above that. Okay. However, he says in Tanya, in the book of Tanya, he says that although heaven constitutes a descent for God, the true purpose is found, the true purpose of all of creation, the entire process of unfolding this light and, and manifesting existence is all for one purpose, and that is for, the, for this right here, right now, for our physical reality. And the way to understand this is thinking about the desire to, let's give an example, the desire to build a home or to build a house. I'm talking about the physical structure. So you begin with a vision. What's the vision? The vision is going to be the house is going to look like this or be like this or, or, or serve this utility. And then you have to go through so many steps from original vision until final execution of actually making that house. Right? It goes through iterations, design iterations, drawings, permitting, um, you know, architectural drafts and drafts, and then you get into construction, and then you get into all of the pieces that it takes to build a house. And at any point in that process, if you were to stop the process completely and say, all right, we're done, the, the person would say, we're not done. This is not what I wanted. I don't want a hole in the ground. I don't want you know, random wood you know, walls. I, I don't want this. I want a home. I want a house. Which means that any place along that journey, if you were to stop there, it would not be the original intent. It would not be what that person wants. It's only when you reach the end and, and the process stops that you know this is what they wanted. This is the home that they wanted. When God unfolds creation, it begins with heaven, begins with the spiritual realms, but God kept on going and manifesting and manifesting and emanating energy. And the process of creation unfolds until it reaches our physical reality. And God creates us. And on the sixth day of creation, the last day of, cre of, 
of creative creation, as it were, because Shabbat was a day of rest, on the sixth day of creation, the last thing that was created was you and I. That's us. That, that's it. And that indicates, when God stops there, that indicates that that is what God wanted. Right? You could run out of money when you're building something. Conceptually, you can run out of money. God can't run out of money. Right? That doesn't, doesn't, God doesn't run out of resources. Humans can run out of resources. It's like, oh, we had a project, we had a building, uh, you know, we ran out of money. God doesn't run out of resources. So how do you know when God's intention is fulfilled? When God stops. Where does God stop? With this physical world, with Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, who are very complicated. Very complicated. Adam and Eve, super complicated. Yeah? Just reference the sin of the Eitz Hadat Tovra, the sin of the Tree of Knowledge. After that, it's all not God. No, here's the point. God is still orchestrating things, etc. But my point is that when you think about why did God do any of this or all of this, it's for you and I right here in this space. Which means the souls in heaven, that's not where it's at. That's a step along the way. Where are souls meant to be? Right here in physical bodies, doing amazing things, transforming a dark space into a bright space. That's what God wanted. Now you can ask, why did God want that? And I'll, I'll share with you what the Alter Rebbe said about this. He said in Yiddish, if a taiva is kenkasha. You can't ask a question on what someone wants. Someone says, I want this. Why? If it's so deep, I can't explain why. Right? A deep desire, I can't, I can't give you an intellectual rationale for it. Right? person says, I like uh, chocolate ice cream. Why do you like chocolate ice cream? I'm going to give you, a, going to give you a, a philosophical reason why. I like it. I like what I like. Hashem, God wanted, God wanted that this world, this lowly, physical, dark world, should be transformed through human effort into a space that is bright, that is loving, that is kind and hospitable hospitable to divine energy. God wanted that. God could have created, and He did, He created spaces that were already spiritual. God wanted a space that starts off not so spiritual to then be revealed to be spiritual and transformed into that beautiful space by us. That's what God wants. That's the entire kavanah. That's the entire intention of creation. Which means that the greatest light is not the light found in heaven. The greatest light is the light born of our good deeds here on earth. This is the big idea in Kabbalah. If you want to find God, if you want to really touch God, it's not in heaven. It's right here. The problem is, the challenge is, that because of the nature of this world, which is darkness, and I've said darkness a few times. Let me explain what I mean. Pretty bright out there. I mean, in the context of divine um, awareness, it is relatively dark. In other words, a person can live their whole life and be unaware of God, be unaware of the Creator, be unaware of their purpose. The point here is that here is where, when we do good things, that's where the greatest light gets, um, that's where we tap into the greatest divine essence, the greatest light. Problem is, because we live in a spiritually dark world, we don't see it. So it's, it's paradoxical. In the spiritual worlds, we see the light, but that's not the real light. That's like a dim, that's like a smaller light. That's like, you know, on, on the level of, of intention and, 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 uh, and desire, that's like when you have the frames of the house up, but that's all you have. Or you have like, I don't know, driving down High Point, there's a house that's being put up now, and it's got that paper wrapped around it. Tyvek. What is it? Tyvek. 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 Right? It's got, it's got, it's wrapped. You can't live in that thing. It's a clear. It's a clear. Yeah, it's a shell. It's a shell of a house. There's no plumbing, no electricity, garnish, no windows. I mean, there's holes, and it's wrapped in paper. If you stop right there and you say, look, here's your house, they're going to say, and I'm paying you for this? <laughs> I don't think so. This is not what I wanted. Heaven, heaven is not what God wanted. In order to get to the final destination, you have to go through a process. In order to get the house, you have to have this wrapping paper on top of it. I actually don't know why, but apparently you have to have this wrapping paper on it. 
Oh, it keeps it dry? Yeah. Moisture barrier. Got it. That makes sense. They, do they peel it off eventually? Or they no, just, they, oh, really? It just yeah, goes. Moisture oh, interesting. It's just like they put tar paper on your roof before the shingles. There you go. Good. And I make cookies, and I know that. Look at, you, look at you. Well, you know that in order to get the frosting, you know, whatever. You've got to prep and prime that surface. Back to, back to the story. The idea here well, is, go yes, story. go. Why didn't Hashem, if his ultimate goal was to create us in yes. this world, yes. he technically actually stopped at Adam? No. Then he made Chava, right? Why didn't he just create a world with lots of people? Well, he created the, a world with ta- dinosaur the, fossils. The Talmud answers that question. Why was Adam created as one and then two and then everyone else? to teach all of us that just like Adam was the one person responsible for the world, we should also feel a singular responsibility to the world to make a difference. Just like Adam couldn't have looked around and said, oh, it's not my responsibility, it's someone else's responsibility, so too we also should say, it's on me. But here's the idea, and then we're gonna jump inside to the final chapter. No, no, it's fine, to the final chapter. When you think about the continuum, see, we typically think that heaven is definitely higher than earth. Heaven is definitely more spiritual than earth. Kabbalah flips it around and says, are you kidding me? Earth is closer to the original intention than heaven. Heaven is a step along the way. But where is the tachlis? Where is the the ultimate goal? Right here. And so a soul, a person doing good things here, is tapping into the pure essence of God's intention more than the soul floating around in heaven pre-life. When the soul finishes its job on earth, it is infused with that. Per- it's now a warrior that has achieved its purpose and, and been part of the, the entire purpose of existence of creation. And now it basks not in divine light, but in the rays of the divine essence. And that's why it needs now garments in order to screen that light, which is so bright. It's too bright even for a soul. The only entity that can contain that light, by the way, in its full measure is us. You know why? Because we don't see it. Imagine, you know, like they say dogs can hear frequencies that we can't hear. Imagine that frequency is blaring, right? Imagine you can hear it. You would go crazy. And us, totally ignorant to it. We don't even know it's there. That's our relationship to divine essence. Here is where the divine essence is. But because we're so, the body is so physical, we don't even know it's right here. And so we say, I don't know, I don't see God. Meanwhile, all of this is divine essence. All of this is the purpose. Does that make sense? It's the paradox. The darker it is, the brighter it is. And the soul experiences that on a, on a, on a, on a, on a visual level, as it were, or on an experiential level, only when the body is no longer there. But then the soul can't handle it. <laughs> can't handle, the, the, in a good way, can't handle the effect of its own mitzvot. It's too powerful for it. So it needs the garments of the mitzvot. The mitzvot create or unleash that divine essence, light, and also serve as a screen to, uh, to allow that light to be filtered. The moral of, yeah. So that's where reincarnation comes in. Um, so every soul has, to put it in, uh, you know, I don't know, simplistic terms, a checklist a spiritual checklist of things to like to get done. If the soul has not accomplished everything on that checklist for whatever reason, so not that the soul comes back directly, but the soul, it's like a, a, when you take a candle and you light another candle from that candle, so now you have two lights. So the soul actually spawns a, um, another soul, as it were, that then carries on that original soul's, soul's mission, plus has its own mission as well, in addition to that old mission. And then if that doesn't finish, then it branches off again. So think of a tree where you have a branch, and then off of that you could have more branches, then more branches, or like a family tree, right? Things can, so you have now, so you, you and I, like our souls, you know, we have our mission. When we do that, we complete all of the other levels behind us that are waiting. So it's kind of like no pressure. But like there's a lot of generations or, or branches of souls that are waiting for us to get, to, get, to get our mission done. But the point is when we do that, that is the tachlis. That's the ultimate, yeah. So, uh, opposed to other religions, maybe, it's more important what we do here on earth. Boom, exactly. And that's the theme of the final chapter. You know, you, you and I might think that the main, our main work is, you know, feeling spiritual. 
right? Meditation, you know, thinking spiritual or feeling spiritual, being inspired. But the main, our main task in this world, which is where it's all at, as I explained before, that's, this, is, this is what God wanted. All of that was to get here. This is it. Therefore, the most important thing here is what we do. Intentions are great in theory. Good feelings are great in feeling world. But in our practical world, olam ha'asiya, the world of action, there's four worlds. Atzilut, bria, yitzira, asiya. Emanation, creation, formation, action. In the world of action, the most important thing is what we do, what we say, what we're thinking about in this moment. Not good intentions, but what we're actually manifesting into the world, how we treat each other, how we speak to each other, right? What we do, the impact we make, that's the most important. And right here in this chapter, and we're going to pass this out right now, this chapter, it's a short chapter, relatively short, um, it really brings home this message. The final message being, what's in your head is wonderful. What's in your heart is great. But the most important thing is tachlis. Tachlis, bottom line. Bottom line, what are we doing to make a difference in this world? That's where it's at. And the way, again, just, just the terminology, because we're going to encounter the terminology in chapter 6, the terminology here is going to be garments of the soul. The garments of the soul are thought, speech, and action. The practical stuff we do to make a difference. That is not just what is most in our wheelhouse to, um, to achieve, but it's also the most necessary for our mission on earth. Okay, let's read this inside chapter 6. I'll read it and uh, obviously share some insights as we go along. And with this week, sorry? Uh, feeling spiritual would lead Probably more oh yeah, yeah. sure there's not yeah so thank you for for saying that there's nothing wrong with spirit, feeling spiritual it's definitely a good thing and thinking spiritual thought right and, and like meditating spirit all of that is great and all that can lead to but just like as i explained with the creation that that if you stop somewhere along the way and you don't get to the end then you miss the point you missed the mark because you didn't get it you didn't get it done the good feelings along the way if it didn't lead to to action Tachlis, it's lacking. It's not, it's not a bad. It's not a bad thing. It's still good, but it's not the. It's not. It's not. It's not the. Real, it's not the most important. You know the the Talmud, the Gemara, right? The the uh, the book of the, this this area of scholarship called the Talmud discusses asks a question: What's greater, study or action? What's better, to study or to do? And you know what the answer is. It says they went back and forth. You know, rabbis arguing over anything, right? <laughs> Who's going to win the game? No, the rabbis were arguing back and forth, right? What's greater, study or action? And here's what they said. You know what's greater? Study. You know why? Because it leads to action. <laughs> and action is the most important thing. That's how you get both, that's how you get both answers. You ever want to know how to, how, to, how, to get, how to say you're both right? So what's greater, study or action? Study is greater. Why? Because it leads to action. And action, and action is the main thing. In the Rebbe's Fabrengans, he would always, after a long philosophical talk on Jewish scholarship, brilliant talk, he always would end the same way. Action is, is paramount. What are we going to do about this? All this talk. It's all good. It's all, there's not, we need to be inspired. And that, that drives action. But at the end of the day, what are we going to do about it? What are we doing about it? That's not to say that we ignore the inside stuff, but that we recognize that God put us here to do good things. Text, uh, sorry, not text. Um, chapter 6, page 34. Oh, let me pull this up on the screen. Uh, bu- 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 give me a second. This is called you like a joke Garments. Absolutely. Always. Young guy goes to his rabbi before getting married. Uh-oh. And he says to the rabbi, <laughs> This could go so many different ways. Do <laughs> we dance at our wedding? The rabbi says, certainly not. The young man says, what about Relations. He says, certainly, 100%. He says, in the kitchen? Yeah. In the, in the living room? Yeah. On the floor? Yeah. Like okay. It's all okay. What about standing? He says, certainly not. He says, why not? It could he lead to dancing. dancing yeah. <laughs> okay. Jeff, you, sa- you said it's going to be kosher. I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I said relations. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. 
I don't know. All right, chapter six. Let's go. Let's jump in. Let's no worries. Let's jump in. Chapter six. Here we go. You guys can see this online. Thumbs up if you can. Yeah. Yeah. Is it showing? Yes. Okay. Good. It can be said that this, that thought, speech, and deed are garments, is also one of the reasons that the experience of thought, speech, and deed matters more than that of the emotions. What he's trying to say here is what I just said, that it's more important. What's most important is where our thoughts are, where our words are, and where our actions are, more than how we feel inside. In other words, the fact that the main thing demanded of every person is the service of controlling thought, speech, and deed is not only because they are in man's control, as mentioned above. In other words, it's not just a, a, um, a uh, conciliation, is that the word? A, um, no, a concession, sorry. It's not just a concession to human frailty. Like, okay, we can't demand that everyone feel perfect inside, so at least we can demand that you do the right thing. That's not, it's not just a concession, but rather also because they matter more. This paragraph is saying something remarkable. The main thing is not how we feel. The main thing is not that we feel holy inside. The main thing is what we're doing, practically speaking, in this world. This will be understood by introducing an off-sided concept regarding the garments, namely that the root of the garments transcends the root of the person wearing them. Look at that. The spiritual source of clothing is higher than the source of the person themselves. This primordial superiority is apparent even in the earthly state of the garments. Thus, the garments surround the person and grant him or her additional beauty and splendor. Thus, Rabbi Yochanan would call his clothing those that honor me because in their source, they transcend the person. His point is like this. Just like clothing in a physical, on a physical level is over the body, so too on a spiritual level, clothing comes from a higher source than the body itself. Clothing comes from a higher source and that's why clothing beautifies the person or brings the person honor, makes the person look I don't know, respectable or whatever it is, whatever the look is, makes the person take on that appearance. How can garments have the power to do so? Because spiritually, they're very power, powerful. Back inside, similarly, bottom paragraph on page 34. Similarly, with regard to the garments of the soul, thought, speech, and deed. That the root of the garments transcends the soul. That's a powerful thing. What's more important, the garments of the soul or the soul itself? We would have said every time, 10 out of 10 times, we would have said the soul is way deeper than the garments of the soul. And now we're saying not so fast. The garments of the soul are actually greater than the soul in one, on one level in that what we do in the garments of the soul is more important than how we feel inside the soul itself. Page 36. Therefore, through the thought, speech, and deed of the 613 commandments, which are the garments of the divine soul, the soul is elevated beyond its natural level, and that's what I share with you today. The soul starts off in heaven on one level, but through its experience below on earth, doing the mitzvot, doing the good deeds in thought, speech, and action, action, doing good deeds, speaking good things, and thinking good thoughts, that lifts the soul, elevates the soul way beyond where it started. Let's look in the brackets, and this is what I shared with you earlier today as well. This is also the significance of mitzvot being the garments for the soul, meaning that specifically through the mitzvot can the soul enjoy the splendor of the divine presence as explained at length in many sources, including the mimer by the same title in Lukut Torah. Basically, when we do mitzvot here on earth, that creates garments for the soul, allowing the soul to experience divine, the divine presence, the pure essence, the pure light of divine essence. Conversely, he says, on the flip side, on a negative side, through the thought, speech, and deed of worldly matters, which are not performed for the sake of heaven, i.e. the garments of the animal soul, the animal soul suffers a descent that exceeds its natural lowness. Let me, give you, let me explain what, that, what he's saying here. Imagine if a person feels unhappy inside. That's just a feeling. But imagine they say something unkind to someone else. That's worse than just feeling it, right? Right? Before you felt it, no one knew about it, and you, whatever, so you're in a bad mood. Okay? It's not the first time it's happened. But when you take it out on someone else, now you're causing damage. You're hurting someone. You're making someone feel bad. You're hurting a relationship. Imagine you do something destructive because you're not feeling in a good mood. Now, you're, now you're, you're creating harm. You're creating objective harm. That's a bad thing. So the, the garments of the soul, it seems like, well, what's worse? Feeling bad or doing bad? Feeling bad because that's how I feel. <laughs> What's worse is doing something bad. The garments of the soul actually on, on one level are more powerful than the soul itself. For the good and for the negative. 
Final page, page 38. And since the divine soul is clothed in the animal soul, and that, that requires its own conversation, but I'll say it very briefly. The way it works is we have a body. In the body, there's the animal soul, and in the animal soul, there's the divine soul. It's almost garbed in the divine soul is garbed in the animal soul. That's why it's so hard sometimes to get in touch with it because we have to cut through some layers inside. So back here. And since the divine soul is clothed in the animal soul, the animal soul's descent causes a descent in the divine soul as well. If the animal soul goes down through its behavior, it pulls down and schleps on the divine soul as well. The animal soul bringing down the divine soul, which is clothed in it, to the lowest of the low. This is why. And here's where he kind of winds up this whole discussion. This is why the primary service of man is turn away from evil and do good. That's a quote from the book of Psalms. Sur merava asetov. King David writes, bottom line, at the end of the day, you know what it's all about? Turn away from evil and do good. In actual physical practice, in thought, speech, and deed. For the purpose of the soul's descent below is that through its service below, it will rise beyond its natural state, i.e. its pre-descent state. The goal is not for the soul to go back to where it started. That would be a waste of time. The, the soul comes all the way down here just to go back to the same spot? Why, why torture the soul like that? Just to get back to the same spot? No way. The, soul, the intention is that the soul should go way higher than before because the soul achieved its purpose and the whole divine purpose right here. And how does it do so? Through action. And this elevation occurs only through the service of the garments, thought, speech, and deed, much like the effect of the garments in the literal sense, which add beauty and splendor to the person that wears them, etc. Now he concludes by tying it back into the context of this discourse, which was a tale of two spies. The spies sent by Moses to check out the land of Israel, which ended in disaster, and the spies sent, which ended in the Jewish wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, versus the spies that Joshua sent to check out Jericho, which ended successfully. So the rabbi concludes, thus Jericho is considered, Jericho also, Yericho, is related to the garments of the soul, as opposed to the land of Israel, which, which represents the seven nations, the seven emotions of the soul itself. He says, thus Jericho is considered the lock of the land of Israel, since through the service of turn away from evil and do good, in thought, speech, and deed, and certainly when one performs the sending of spies to Jericho to scout out and examine the thought, speech, and deed, and ensure that they are entirely devoted to God, one reaches the service of refining and transforming the emotions, i.e. the conquest of the land of the seven nations and even further. He says like this, when we work on our, how we show up in the world practically, that also ultimately leads to transforming our inner emotions, what's really going inside. So in other words, we can work, we don't have to work on the inside and then work outside, we can work from the outside in. First, perfecting our deeds and then working, winding our way back inside into our soul's interior. And he says that will lead to the conquest of the seven nations, i.e. the conquest of the emotions, and even further beyond that, the Lord your God will expand your borders, referring to the conquest of the land of the Cani, Kinesia and Kadmoni in the Messianic era, which represents the three brains, the th well, brains is a weird term, the three intellectual capacities, Chachma, Bina, and Dat, with the coming of the righteous Mashiach, literally soon, and let us say, Amen. And I want to end, thank you, and I want to end with this idea. You know, and, and, and this is where these two ideas tie in, the, to the time of year. We find ourselves, again, a few days before Rosh Hashanah, and we might be thinking of New Year's resolutions, like, what do I want for myself for the New Year? And I think what this discourse is advocating is that we could work in two different spaces. We can say, you know, how do I become a more, you know, a better person inside? How do I work on myself on the inside? Or we can talk about practical resolutions. What am I going to do differently this year? And a person might say, well, if I improve myself, my character, isn't that more powerful than just, you know, committing to do something this year? And what he's advocating in this discourse is no on two levels. It's more important what we do. Number one, because we live in a world of action and what we do makes a difference as opposed to how we feel. How we feel doesn't make that much of a difference. I hate saying that. It sounds kind of harsh. But how we feel doesn't... Re I remember there was a commercial on the radio a few years ago. It's like, um, I don't know, no child ever benefited from someone feeling generous. Right? The only benefit from such a hungry kid... Sometimes have to have a 
Oh, good. So that's how we think. We think that if I feel perfect, then I can do good things. I can do perfect things. And what he's saying here is if we wait for that, we may never get good things done. So skip that step. Commit to doing good. And then you know what? He says at the last paragraph, it'll work backwards. You can fake it till you make it, but it'll go backwards. If you act generously, then you'll start feeling generously. But to wait until you're so inspired inside, I'm going to work on myself to be a tzaddik on the inside, and then I'll do all the good things, that may never happen. That may never happen. That's almost a fool's errand. The real way to do this, he says, and not just because it's the most expedient way to do it, but because it's the most important, it's the most important way to, to, to operate in this world. The most important factor is what we do and what we say and how we think. But the most important thing, let's just stick to action, is what we do. And we can feel kind, and we can feel generous, and we can feel loving, and we can feel, I don't know, spiritual. We can have the feelings, but not execute them, and not actually deliver. The main thing is delivering. The main thing is getting, implementing goodness in this world, getting it done. And that's the message of this discourse. Moses attacks, attacks, sends spies to the entire land. Seven nations. That means Moses says, let's work on the inner landscape. And that failed. That mission failed. The spies came back with a negative report. The land is too difficult. And you know what happens? They wandered for 40 years. At the end of the 40 years, Joshua sent spies. And he sent spies only to Jericho. Jericho is thought, speech, and action. If you want to be successful in that, in that work, start with practical stuff. How do I show up? This year, how can I commit? In what area can I commit to speak more kindly to those around me? How am I going to use my words in a healing way, in an uplifting way, as opposed to a hurtful way? My actions. What am I going to do this year to make a bigger impact, on the, in a good way, to make a bigger impact in the world, to bring more light into the world? What can I do this year to do that? One thing. That's it. What's going to happen inside? Am I going to be a more spiritual person? That will come through that. That will come through that. But to try to go, to try to start with, I want to be more spiritual, and then I'm going to do more spiritual things, that, that might, it might get stuck in that big, grandiose agenda. So, one gives charity, and because they get pressure or whatever reason, eventually they'll feel better inside. I don't know about, he's not saying pressure. I think he's saying like this. A person recognizes that even though they struggle, with whatever it is, whatever mitzvah it is. A person may struggle with it because, because we have a godly soul, but we also have an animal soul, and we have a body that has its own needs. So because of that, we struggle with any mitzvah. So the question, though, is, so the question is like this. Should I work on myself to the point that I don't struggle and then do it? Or do I say, I'm struggling with it. I'm not perfect. I have mixed feelings on this. Not pressure, but I know it's the right thing to do. And I know it's going to make a difference. And therefore, I'm doing it. When we do that, he's saying, you know what happens ultimately? You're going to start feeling more in sync with, with your behavior. As opposed to saying, well, let me work on myself to the point where I feel perfectly comfortable with every good thing that I'm doing, and then I'll do it. It's like, it's never, it may never happen. It's like, do I need, I'm going to give a parallel, not an exact parallel, but, a, but I don't know, maybe a, a bit of a random parallel. Do I need to know how the light switch works to hit the light switch? No. I need, I need, it's dark inside. I want to make a light. I hit the light switch. That's it. Do I need to know how it works? Why it works? Where it works? I don't need to know that. Do I need to feel good inside about it? No, just hit the light. You need light? Let's go. We need more light in this world. Right? We need more light. We need more goodness and kindness. We need more positivity in this world. And each of us is so powerful. Each of us has the ability to literally bring light into this world. And as a New Year's resolution, I can't think of any better resolution than to think for ourselves what unique opportunities, um, resources, gifts, talents, whatever, relationships that do I have to be able to, to leverage all of that to bring more light into this world in a practical way. That will lead to us feeling more, more spiritual. And so as we get ready for the new year, Let's, um, let's remember that we live in a world of action. And because of that, Hamaisahua Iker, 
it's good to feel good, it's good to feel spiritual and to feel inspired, that will come. The main thing is action. The main thing is practical goodness. And so this year, let's resolve one more mitzvah. Whatever that, whatever, whatever mitzvah maybe you haven't been doing or maybe not doing consistently, choose, and everyone knows for themselves what they would aspire to this year. Take one mitzvah, one good deed. Could be anything. Lighting Shabbat candles, wrapping tefillin, you know, davening in the morning, praying in the morning. Whatever your mitzvah is, right? One kosher meal, whatever, whatever, your, whatever your mitzvah is. Take one mitzvah and run with it this year. Make that your go-to. Make that your go-to. And indeed, with every mitzvah that we do, we should bring light into this world in a practical way and then light into our lives and into our souls. And with this, as the discourse concludes, may we merit the time when the entire world is transformed, not just the outside, but the inside into a bright space, which will be in the time of the Messianic era, may be speedily in our days. And let us say, Amen. Great. Shana Tova, everybody. See you guys next year. See you next year. Oh, right. So now schedule announcement. I mentioned this before. Very important. Scheduling a scheduling um, uh, note. So next week is day two of Rosh Hashanah. The week following is Erev Yom Kippur. The week following that is Sukkot. The week following that is, I don't know, Shemini Atzeret? Simchat Torah. Simchat Torah. So we have four weeks in a row that are directly holidays or Erev Yom Kippur, which is a very busy day. Um, so with that in mind, we are off Kabbalah Cafe for the next several weeks. We will pick it up in, I guess, five weeks time, five weeks from today. It's a big gap. It's a big gap. But what are you going to do? We got the gap. Mind the gap. So, oh, Paula, that's, uh, that's, the, that's from London. Mind the gap. Um, I spent the year in yeshiva in London, actually. So I, 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 I know the tube, or whatever they call it. Um, anyway, the point is that we'll be, we'll be back with a brand new discourse, something very exciting. Take a look. Stay tuned for the emails with the subject and the topic. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I want to wish everybody, everybody, a Shana Tova Matuka, a happy and healthy, sweet new year. And the blessings should be sweet. You know, we talk about sweet because you can have blessings, but maybe they're not so sweet. Maybe they're blessings that you have to interpret as a blessing. Oh, it's really a blessing. If you look at it, we don't want any blessings that need interpretation. No, no silver li- no clouds with, with, with silver, li- silver linings. We want pure silver. Is that, can I say, is that, is that coherent? I don't know. No clouds with silver linings, just pure goodness. Sweet goodness, good health, happiness, parnasa, success, on every level, it should, we should be blessed. So, I want to express my gratitude to all of you for being here Sundays with me and, and studying together, and it's a great way. I couldn't think of a better way to start my week with you guys, and I'm just very grateful for you being here. And um, I should call you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. My father, who was religious, but not very well educated, he always said, what matters is what you do here on earth. <laughs> Powerful. All right. All right. Shana everyone. Thank you very much for all this relation. Pleasure, pleasure. Mariana, great to see you. Shana Dr. Maxi, and David, and Lisa, and Matt, great to see you. And Paula, hope to see you again soon. Shana Tova, everyone. Take care. Okay, people, you got to finish up the bagels and lots. By the way, yeah, we don't want to have extra leftovers.